What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, the main purpose of John's gospel is that uh, he wants people to believe something specific, believe that Jesus is God and that ultimately by believing that they would have life in Jesus's name. And, And John uses three main things to help prove that Jesus is God. First, he uses seven eyewitness testimonies that specifically testify that Jesus is God. Second, he uses seven signs that Jesus did to prove that he's God. And then finally, he's going to use seven I am statements of Jesus himself declaring that he is God. Now, in chapter one, John brought forth four eyewitness testimonies to to show us that Jesus is God. We had John the Baptist declare Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Andrew testified that Jesus was the Messiah. Philip testified that Jesus was the one uh, prophesied in the Old Testament. Nathaniel testified that Jesus was the Son of God, the King of Israel. And so chapter 1, we really have this emphasis of eyewitness testimonies to prove that Jesus is God. And now as we come to chapter 2, there's kind of a transition in the sense of what John is seeking to use to prove Jesus his deity. And so he's moving from eyewitness testimony to signs, because that's another thing that he wants to use in this gospel to help prove that Jesus is God. And a sign is really just a miracle that points beyond itself. Notice that John doesn't use the term miracle. He says signs because he's saying, hey, the miracles that I have chosen are signs because they point to something about Jesus. They point to the reality and truth that he is God. And ultimately, these signs help people see that and cause many of them to believe that Jesus is God. Well, the first sign that, that John's going to bring up here in the uh, chapter two is actually the very first miracle that Jesus performs as he's here on this earth. And it's a miracle that helps prove that Jesus is God. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, but we're not only going to see, you know, how this miracle demonstrates Jesus's deity, that there's several people involved in what transpires here as we see this first miracle. And we're going to see actually a lot of great practical application of things that we're going to learn, not only from what Jesus does, but also from what other people do who are involved in what transpires. So let's see what we can learn from all of them Starting chapter 2, verse 1 says this, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. 
So the setting of this first miracle that Jesus does, it's in this place called Canaan. But more importantly, the setting is a wedding celebration. And John tells us that Jesus, Jesus's mother, and Jesus's disciples, they were all invited to this wedding. So they're all there during this wedding celebration. And before we get into the details of what happens in this wedding, I want us to note something that it says about Jesus, the fact that He was actually invited to come to this wedding that this couple who was getting married invited Jesus to be a part of this celebration. And I think it reveals the kind of person that Jesus was. You know, he was someone that people wanted to be at their celebrations. This isn't the only occurrence that we see of this. As you look through the Gospels, oftentimes Jesus is invited to celebrations. He's invited to places where people are having good time and and doing things that, that oftentimes we have this kind of misunderstood view of Jesus. It's like, if I invite Jesus to something, he's going to spoil the fun. You know, Jesus is the one that robs the joy. I mean, if you're going to have a party, don't invite him. You know, that's kind of the mindset that many people have when it comes to Jesus. And it couldn't be further from the truth. He's someone who is full of joy. He's someone who brings joy. He's someone who is a great person to invite to a place where you're going to have a good time. Now, now don't get the wrong idea of what I'm saying here. You know, when I speak of, you know, um, inviting Jesus to a place where you have a good time. Some people, their their concept of that is, you know, indulging in sinful behavior. Well, if you invite Jesus to a place where you're indulging in sinful behavior, he's not going to bring joy and blessing. He's going to bring judgment. He's going to bring, you know, correction. And so, uh, but as believers, you know, we can have times of joy. We can have times of celebration where it's not sinful. We don't have to do sinful things in order to, you know, enjoy ourselves and enjoy one another. And Jesus is a great person to bring and invite uh, when we're doing things like that. Actually, Psalm 16 and 11 says, in your presence is fullness of joy. You know, this is such a wonderful thing to recognize about God. You know, in his presence It's not, oh, if you bring the presence of God, everything's going to be so dreary, everything's going to be so bad. No, in his presence is fullness of joy. Inviting Jesus is inviting joy. It's a great person to invite. So the fact that Jesus was invited to this wedding, I think it helps to reveal the kind of person that he was. People wanted him to come to their celebrations. But you know, something else important to note is really on the the side of the people who actually invited Jesus. It's very wise to invite Jesus to your wedding. Even wiser to invite Jesus into your marriage. You know, we're going to see that if this couple didn't invite Jesus to their wedding, their wedding was going to be a disaster. There was going to be a huge problem that they weren't going to be able to deal with if Jesus wasn't there. But because they invited Jesus to their wedding, he takes what could have been a disaster and he just adds to the joy, adds to the blessing of this ceremony. And I think the same is true for any marriage. When you invite Jesus into it, he brings joy. He brings blessing. He's someone that you need because if you don't invite him into your marriage, it ends up in disaster. But it's not just marriages that we should invite Jesus into. Really, any relationship that we have, we want to invite Jesus. Anything that we are endeavoring to do, we want to invite Jesus to be a part of that. 
You know, I want you to think about your, your calendar, what you have going on on this week coming up. Think about the people that, you know, you're planning to visit, the, the things that you have on your calendar that you're going to do. And, you know, I want to encourage you, invite Jesus to be a part of that. Include him in your plans. But I also want to give you a warning. If there is someone that you're going to see or a place that you're going to go that you would feel uncomfortable inviting Jesus to, why don't you just cross that off your calendar? Why don't you not do that? If you're not comfortable for Jesus to be there, then you shouldn't be there. Uh, and so I think that's just a great kind of um, rule to live by in inviting Jesus and avoiding places that you wouldn't want to take Jesus to. So Jesus, his disciples, his mother, they're all a part of this wedding celebration. And all of a sudden, this problem occurs. Let's see what the problem is in verses 3 through 5. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. So the problem that they have now at this wedding feast is that they run out of wine. Now, in order to understand why this was such a big problem, we need to understand the social significance of this wedding feast, this wedding celebration. In the Jewish culture, this was the biggest and the best celebration that they had. And you would invite the majority of the little town that you lived in. Uh, so this was a, a huge deal. This was a big, big thing. And it was the responsibility of the couple getting married to make sure they had enough food, to make sure they had enough drink, which would include wine, to feed everybody that came. Okay? We have a similar mindset in our culture. You know, we expect the couple getting married or at least the family connected to the couple getting married to provide a meal, to provide, you know, drinks for those who are invited to the wedding. Uh, and, you know, if there was a line of people or, or a bunch of tables of people and they didn't get served, there was no food for them, you know, there was no drink for them, that would be an embarrassment. You know, uh, we invited 100 people, we could only feed 50, you know, that that would be a problem. And for the couple getting married, married, that that would be, you know, embarrassing. It'd be, you know, probably a, a little bit considered rude, but they'd get over it. You know, people wouldn't hold it against them probably for too long. Maybe some of the relatives, uncle or something, if he didn't get any food, he might be bringing it up the next few Christmases. But in the Jewish culture, it was far worse if this transpired. It would be shameful and disgraceful to run out of food or wine. Merrill Tenney wrote this, to fail in providing adequately for the guests would involve social disgrace. In the closely knit communities of Jesus' day, such an error would never be forgotten and would haunt the newly married couple all their lives. Now, something else interesting to note here is that there could possibly even be legal implications to not providing what you were expected to provide during your wedding. There are actually ancient Jewish legal documents showing people being sued, one for not bringing an appropriate wedding gift, 
You know, imagine that. Hey, you didn't give me an appropriate wedding gift. I'm suing you. But others being sued for not providing adequately for the guests that they invited to their wedding. So beyond social disgrace, there was a possibility for legal liability for this couple who runs out of wine in the middle of their celebration. But one other interesting thing to note, especially among the rabbis, they would decide and say, you know what? Wine is a symbol of joy. And so if wine runs out of a wedding ceremony, it's kind of like the joy is gone. Let's go home. You know, and even some would go as far as to say, you know, the joy of your marriage is in jeopardy. And so running out of wine was a big problem for this newly married couple. Now, we're not told how Mary hears about this news. She finds out. No one really knows. She finds out about it. She hears about this problem. We've run out of wine. This is a significant issue in this culture. And so she does something very wise. She brings the problem to Jesus. And she tells Jesus, they have no wine. Now, whenever we have a problem, or we know of someone else, like in this instance, who has a problem... Something that's really wise of us to do is take that problem first and foremost and bring it to Jesus. You know, unfortunately, oftentimes in our life, Jesus is the last person we bring the problem to. You know, we go to this person, we go to that person, we go to all the people we can think about, and we tell them the problem, we want their advice, we want their help, and oftentimes when they're not capable of giving us the advice we need or the help we need, we finally come to a place, oh, well, nothing else has worked, maybe I'll bring it to Jesus, maybe I'll pray, maybe I'll I'll allow Jesus to try to help me, instead of recognizing, you know what, The one who can help us best is Jesus. So why am I wasting my time going to all these other people that aren't going to nearly be able to have the resources that he has, the power that he has, the help that he can bring? And so I would encourage you, Jesus is the best help you're going to get for the problems that you face. So come to him first. And for other people that you know are going through problems, Jesus is the best help for them as well. So come to Jesus on their behalf as well. Well, Jesus responds to this problem that Mary brings to his attention by saying, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So Jesus is always saying, why are you bringing this problem that's going to take really kind of a miraculous move here? Because my hour has not yet come. And when when we're speaking of Jesus' hour, throughout the Bible we hear that term, and it's kind of spoken of in different aspects, but ultimately here speaking of the time frame in which Jesus would start and establish his earthly ministry and manifest who he is through miracles. All right, I have some disciples following me, but you know, Mary, my time hasn't come to to get all this going. And obviously, we're going to see through the story. He seeks the Lord and feels like it is the time to start doing these things. But you know what? Some people read this and they think, man, Jesus is being super rude to his mom because in English, Jesus he says, "Mother," or um, woman, sorry, what does your concern have to do with me? Now, if I address my mom as woman, you know, that would definitely be seen as very rude and disrespectful. But this is one of those times where, you know, the Bible's translated from other languages into English and we kind of miss something. And so we translate it woman. And then we kind of, in our culture, see kind of that rude connotation that goes with it. But it didn't have that in the original language. William Barclay wrote this. 
So far from being a rough and discourteous way of address, it was a title of respect. We have no way of speaking in the English which exactly renders it, but it's better to translate it lady, which gives at least the courtesy in it. So this wasn't some disrespectful way that Jesus addresses his mom. It's actually just more formal. Some commentators even take it to, you know, maybe, I don't know if it's fully something that I would go to, but, you know, they say, you know what, Jesus is actually trying to redefine a little bit the relationship here that, you know what, now I do only what my heavenly father says. And so don't try to use, you know, the fact that you're my mom to influence and, and control what I do, that our relationship's different now. But, you know, I think that might be a little bit much, but but um, at the end of the day, how Mary responds, I think, is the big thing that I want us to focus on. She brings this problem to Jesus. Jesus shares this. And notice her response. It's kind of very interesting because we don't have that much recorded about Mary as a, in the sense of what she said. And if you actually look through Mary's words that are recorded in the Bible, it shines a pretty good light on her. I mean, the first time you got the angel Gabriel coming to her and, and she's ultimately just like, hey, God, whatever you want. A, a total submission, you know, then we see her with Elizabeth, my soul magnifies the Lord. I mean, a lot of what she says definitely shines a good light on her. And I think of all the things that she says, this is the most significant. And this is actually the last recorded words of Mary in the Bible. And she's speaking to the servants who were there at this wedding feast. And notice what she says, whatever Jesus says to you, do it. You know, if you want a motto for your life, I don't think there's much better one than this. I think all of us would say, this should be the motto of our life. Whatever Jesus says to you, do it. Now, in this great statement of Mary, we see three wonderful things that should be included in our obedience to Jesus. First, our obedience needs to be entire. Notice, whatever he says. Whatever speaks of the scope, it speaks of the range that we should have in our obedience to Jesus. So what she's saying is whatever Jesus tells you to do, no matter what it is, do it entirely. The second thing I want you to note, our obedience should be exclusive. She says whatever he says. Now, not what the disciples say or, or anybody else at this wedding says. Whatever Jesus tells you, that's what you need to listen to. So if other people are, you know, are saying stuff, then, then, then you don't listen to them. Listen to Jesus to the exclusion of others unless what other people are saying are in line with what he says. Third, our obedience should be exact. Whatever he says, do it. Do the exact thing that Jesus says. Don't do something similar. Don't, don't do something that's like it or, or partially like it. Do exactly the thing that Jesus says. We need to make whatever Jesus says to you do it the motto of our life. Our obedience to Jesus needs to be entirely, exclusively, exactly what Jesus commands. It needs to be the motto that influences our choices and all of the relationships that we have, all the endeavors that we engage in. You know, in your marriage, your motto should be, whatever Jesus says to you, do it. You know, for me as a husband, God's word tells me, love Jenny as Christ loved the church. And if my motto is, whatever Jesus says to me, do it, well, guess what? I better do what his word tells me to do. If you're parenting, your motto should be, whatever Jesus says to you, do it. 
Train up your children in the way they should go. Bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Those are things that we should do because, hey, whatever Jesus says, do it. In your job, your motto should be whatever Jesus says to you, do it. As we looked at in Colossians, we should be obeying our boss unto the Lord, doing it heartily as to the Lord, not to men. In your relationship with Jesus, definitely whatever Jesus says to you, do it. Jesus tells us, if you love me, keep my commandments. You want to show me love? Then do what I say. Be obedient to me. If we would follow the motto, whatever Jesus says to you, do it in all our relationships and endeavors, it would do two great things. First, it would protect us. It would protect us from making foolish decisions. It would protect us from the consequences of those foolish decisions. And it would bless us because we'd be doing what God has called us to do. So here we have two wonderful examples from Mary that we should follow. First, when you have a problem, bring it to Jesus. And second, whatever Jesus says to you, do it. So Mary poses this to these servants. All right, servants, whatever Jesus says to you, do it. And now the servants are waiting to hear what Jesus says. All right, Jesus, what do you want us to do? Well, let's see what Jesus tells them in verses 6 through 8. Now there were six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. So we're told that there are six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews. Here's a picture from the museum in Jerusalem of what these water pots would have looked like. Now understand, before the Jews would eat, they would purify themselves and they would you know, wash many things. But one of the main things was their hand. We kind of do something similar. Typically, we wash our hands before we eat. But but they wouldn't go to a sink and turn on running water because they didn't have that back then. So they would need, you know, these different, you know, stone, you know, jars that have water in it that they could come and they could cleanse themselves and purify themselves before they go and eat. And we're told that there's six of these pots. 20 to 30 gallons, so let's just put that in the middle, about 25 gallons apiece, all right? So that's a lot of people who probably needed to purify themselves before eating at this wedding. But now remember, this is the middle of the wedding. You know, the the food's been served, they've already run out of wine, so all that purification process has already transpired, so likely these are close to empty or completely empty, and they're just sitting there, and so Jesus tells these servants, hey, I want you guys to fill these water pots. Now, if they are completely empty, that's about 150 gallons of water that these guys need to fill. And they can't just grab the hose and put it in there and turn it on and, you know, wait for a little bit. All right, they're full. No, they had no access to that. They would have to go to a well, which would only have a bucket so big, lower it down, raise it up, pour that bucket into some other container, carry that container to these stone jars, fill them up, go back and do this process over and over again. And so to put 150 gallons of water in here was a lot of work. And so what Jesus is telling them to do wasn't some easy thing. But I want you to note the response these servants have to Jesus's command when he says to them, you know, fill this up. We're told they filled them up to the brim. Now, I want to note three things here about the response that these servants do towards Jesus' command. First, 
They obeyed immediately. Right after Jesus says, I want you guys to fill up these six water pots were sold and they filled them up. You know, there, there's no gap. There's no, well, let us go have some food. You know, it's like right away, they immediately obey what Jesus tells them to do. And I think it's a wonderful example of how we should obey Jesus. When he commands us to do something, that we should do it immediately. You know, when Jenny and I give commands to our daughters, Scarlett and Eden, you know, sometimes they, they like to delay what we tell them to do. So we'll often say, hey, obey without delay. You know, do it now. Oh, go clean your room. Well, can I play first or can I? No, do it right now. Immediately, don't delay. But you know what? We get older, we grow up, we have a relationship with God, and oftentimes we do the same thing. He says, I want you to do this, and we want to delay the obedience. Well, can I do this first? And, and I got this that I want to do, and, and so I, not right now. Maybe it's a sin he wants us to stop doing. A relationship he wants us to reconcile. A godly action he wants us to start doing. And instead of obeying immediately when we're studying the Bible, we're getting challenged from the Word, the Lord speaking to us, we often delay our obedience. Lord, just, just one more day or, you know, one more week. I want to indulge in this sin and then I'll, I'll stop. You know, then I'll, then I'll deal with it. Then I'll, then I'll get right. Oh yeah, I know that you want me to reconcile with this person, but you know, I'm just not ready for that. I don't really want to deal with all the drama of that. How, how about next week or, or maybe next month? I'll, I'll try to take care of that. You know, I know that there's this thing that you want me to start doing, this godly behavior that I'm not doing right now, but you know, I got a lot going on this week. You know, maybe next week, you know, I'll take that serious and I'll actually apply that to my life. When God speaks to us and commands us to do something, he wants immediate obedience. He doesn't want delayed obedience. And something important for us to understand, it's what's best for us. If we immediately obey, it's better for us than delayed obedience. Satan wants us to convince us, hey, no, just hold on to that sin another day, another week, another month, another year. Oh, that's what's best for you. No, getting rid of it right away is what's best for you. Reconciliation or whatever God's calling us to do, doing it right away is always best. And one of the things that's reasons it's best is because it saves us from added consequences. The longer we keep sinning, and stop, you know, we don't stop doing what we're, you know, shouldn't be doing. It adds more negative consequences. But when we do what God says, it's wonderful blessings and benefits that come from that obedience. So the first thing to note these servants do is they obey immediately. Second, they obey completely. We're told that they filled them up to the brim. So Jesus says, fill the water pots. Now remember, this is like 150 gallons. They might have thought, yeah, is it full enough? I think it's full enough. I'm not going back to that well. I mean, 80% full is fine, you know? No, they fill these things to the brim. There's no more water that they can put in it. They fill it completely. There's a complete obedience to what Jesus told them to do. Now, as I already noted, that this was a lot of work. And in my personal experience, for me, one of the reasons that I choose not to be fully obedient to what God commands is because what he's commanding me is hard work. It's difficult. You know, for example, when God says, I, I want you to love that difficult per in your person in your life every single day. Well, Lord, how about just once this week? 
Yeah, not complete obedience, and a little partial obedience. I mean, you understand this person. I got to work with them every day. I mean, they're like the most difficult person in my life. I can't love them every day. How about just one day this week? Won't that be enough? Where God says, you know what? There's this sin and this sin and this sin and that sin in your life. I want you to stop all of them. All of them? How about one of them? You know, this one right here, you know, this is the one that I'm willing to work on right now. I'll do that and I'll keep doing the other ones. You know, what we're ultimately saying is, Lord, are you okay with partial obedience? Are you okay with me doing a little of what you say, but not completely what you say? Well, the Bible is pretty clear. The answer to that question is, no, he's not okay with that. He's not okay with partial obedience. He wants complete obedience from us. So the first thing to note about the servant's response is they obey immediately. The second is they obey completely. The third thing actually comes from the second command that Jesus gives to these servants in verse 8. Jesus says to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. Now, the master of the feast, he's a man who's kind of in charge of this wedding celebration. It was kind of similar to maybe our wedding coordinators that we have today. He was responsible for making sure all the events ran the way that they were supposed to. He would also be responsible for making sure the food was prepared properly. He would taste the food to make sure it tasted right before it was served. He was the one who they would bring the wine to. He would taste it because in that time they would add certain portions of water to the wine. And so he would be the one to make sure everything was just right and that was his role to do that and so Jesus tells the servants who filled these six water pots with water I want you to take some of the water out of one of those water pots and I want you to bring it to the master of the feast now the implication here that the servants would have grasped is we're bringing this to the master of the feast he doesn't taste water he only tastes wine So we're bringing it for him to taste this and, you know, we're bringing him water ultimately. And this is going to be a problem if he drinks water. What are you guys doing? Bring me water. You know, I'm here to taste wine. Where's our wine? Uh, And so, you know, this was something that they would realize we're going to be in trouble with the master of the feast. If this jug here that we're bringing to him is water, not wine. Well, here's a little spoil alert. Jesus is going to miraculously change this water into wine. But something I love about what Jesus does, I guess maybe I should rephrase that. I like that in the story. I don't particularly like it in my own life, is that he chooses to not change the water into wine until after he commands them to carry this to the master of the feast and they go ahead and do that. You know, it would have been a lot easier if in those six jugs, The water is now turned into wine. They see it. They're blown away. And then Jesus says, hey, now just take some of this wine and bring it to the master of the feast. Well, yeah, that's simple. I can bring wine to him. I've seen it change. I'll taste a little of it. Man, this is going to be great. I can't wait to bring it to the master of the feast. But when it's just water and Jesus says, take this water to the master of the feast. Now, all of a sudden, that's difficult. I got to have faith to trust that Jesus is going to do something between now and when I get to the master of the feast to change this into something, or I'm going to look like an idiot. I'm going to give this guy water. I'm going to be in trouble. That's so often how Jesus works. I want you to just put your faith in me. I want you to trust in me. So the servants, they do it. They go. And they're going ultimately obeying in faith. And that's the third thing to note about the response of these servants is they obeyed in faith. You know, this is oftentimes one of the most difficult aspects of obedience for you and for I. 
to obey in faith, to trust that God is going to do something, even though we have no idea how he's going to do it. To trust that he can do something miraculous when we're just not sure how in the world we don't see it right in front of us. All we see is the water and, you know, it's meant to be something else. And, and we're just kind of like, oh, you sure about this, Lord? You want me to take this step without any knowledge of how you're going to do this, how you're going to work? You know, I've seen this many times in marriages where people come for counseling and their marriages are really struggling and you know I'll bring them to the word of God bring them to the role that God shares of what the husband should do and what the wife should do and often the response is you know I just can't see if I love my wife like Christ loved the church or, or if I respect my husband in this way how it's going to fix my marriage how it's going to deal with these problems and ultimately they have to come to a place where they have to say, you know what, I trust, I put my faith in the truth of what God's word says, that if I do what his word says, it's going to fix my marriage. But if they don't believe that, if they don't trust it, and unfortunately I've had couples who, who didn't, and they say, you know, that's never going to work, I'm not going to apply that, I'm not going to do that. you got to get to a place where you just say, you know what, I have faith that what Jesus says is going to work. And even though I can't figure it out, even though I don't know how me doing this is going to you know, equal this result... I trust that he says it will work, and so I'm just going to put my faith in him, and I'm just going to do it and watch and see how he works. But you know what? That's hard for us. <laughs> Oftentimes it's like, Lord, I will obey you when you tell me exactly how everything's going to work out. Once I know that, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be obedient here. You know, when you tell me how the situation's going to end, when I can see everything... When you tell me why this is going to happen, hey, I'm happy to then be obedient. But you know what? In my experience and, and talking with many people, this is a, a rarity for the Lord. Usually he just says, just trust me. I'm not going to tell you how it's all going to end. I'm not going to tell you how I'm going to work. I'm not going to tell you why. I'm not going to tell you all the details. All I want from you to do is just trust me that I will do what I say I'll do, and you don't have to know all the details surrounding it. So these servants are a great example to us of how we should respond to Jesus' command. We should respond by obeying immediately, obeying completely, and obeying in faith. So these servants, in obedience to Jesus, they take this jug of water to the master of the feast. And let's see what happens in verses 9 and 10. When the master of the feast tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have drunk, the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. So the servants take this jug of water that they give it to the master of the feast and he tastes it. And notice what we're told after he tastes this water. We're told that it was water was made wine. Now we're not told exactly the moment when this happened. Maybe it happened as they were carrying it. Maybe it happened literally as he was pouring it. But before he consumes it, the water has been turned into wine. And notice we're told the master did not know where the wine came from, but the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. They were part of that small group that was aware of what Jesus did. The master of the feast, who's supposed to be the man in the know, the man who's overseeing all the wedding details, he just gets some wine, has no clue where it's come from, 
But imagine how blown away these servants must have been. You know, they're carrying this water, and I'm sure there's a little bit of fear there. I mean, they take this step of faith, but I'm sure they're thinking, man, if, if he drinks this water, we're, we're, we're done. This is going to be really bad for us. And then all of a sudden, you know, he drinks this wine, and they probably just go from this fear to this amazement of like, I can't believe that this actually transpired just now. And notice what the master of the feast does after he drinks this miracle wine that Jesus made. He calls the bridegroom over and he speaks. He says, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. You know, typically at the wedding feast, they put the good wine out first, the tasty wine, the expensive wine. And after people had that and had their meal and, and they still wanted some more, then you bring out the inferior cheap stuff. You know, but you start with the good stuff, let them get the good tasting stuff. And, and maybe you're hoping that some of them have drank a little too much so they won't even taste how bad the bad stuff is. And that was the typical way that weddings would function. And the master of the feast is like, man, you brought out the best stuff at the end. You know, wow, this is amazing. You really know how to throw a party. You bring the best wine at the conclusion, not at the beginning. And I want us to know three things about this miracle, about water being changed into wine. First, note that Jesus chose to involve people in this miracle. Could Jesus just have filled those six water pots with wine automatically? Absolutely. He didn't need the servants to go collect, you know, 150 gallons of water. It wasn't like, well, guys, I can turn water into wine, but I can't just make wine on its own. So I'm going to need your help here. That wasn't the situation. He chose to use these guys. I want you to be a part of this. You know, Jesus could have just ultimately had a jug sitting next to the master of the feast that constantly filled with wine. He didn't have to use these guys. He chose to use these servants because he wanted to involve them in this miracle for their benefit. It doesn't benefit Jesus, but it benefits them. You know, this was something that they were probably never going to forget. I mean, if they just heard about it or if they were there and they said, you know, wow, someone said that Jesus turned water into wine, you know, that would have been memorable. But the fact that they collected 150 gallons of water and that they carried that water and that they were there watching the master of the feast drink wine now and they experienced that, I mean, that was going to be something that they were a part of that would stay with them. You know, oh, look at what Jesus and us did. We were a part of this miracle that he did. It was amazing. It would have helped them get a better grasp of who Jesus was. And this is the way that Jesus often works today when it comes to the miraculous. He loves to include us. He loves to use you and I in the miraculous things that he's seeking to do. And it's for our benefit. It's for our growth. It's so that we can deepen our understanding and appreciation of who he is. You know, that's what he wants to do. It's like, yeah, I could reach people with the gospel by myself. I could do this miraculous work by myself. But you know what? I want to use you. I want to involve you. I want you to be a part of this so that you can be benefited by it. So the second thing I want you to note about this miracle is that it was good. First of all, it tasted good. It was better than the best wine that was placed out at the beginning. That's what the master of the feast said. Man, you saved the best wine till the end. When Jesus does miracles, they're good. We shouldn't be surprised that if Jesus is going to make wine, it's going to be good wine. But I think more importantly than that, it was good for the bride and the bridegroom at this party. You know, this is why Jesus did it. He wasn't just like, hey, let me show you what kind of wine I can create. He only did this for the purpose of this couple 
who would have been disgraced, this couple who would have been shamed. I'm doing this for you guys. I'm blessing you in providing this wine for your ceremony. And so it was good for them. Notice when the master of the feast, he announces this. Man, that brought praise to this couple. Wow, you guys know how to throw a party. I can't believe that you would splurge on us like this. Now you're bringing out the good stuff. Man, you guys, you know, wow, you, you really know how to take care of us. They, they now are, you know, in the social eyes of everyone in a great place. But you know what? If Jesus didn't do this miracle, the master of the feast would have been announcing something else. We're out of wine, everybody. Sorry, you know, the bride and groom here, you know, they didn't plan well enough. We don't have any. Maybe we should just go home. You know, they would have had a really different response. It would have been a disaster. And so this miracle of Jesus was good. It brought blessing. It brought joy to this young couple. And it brought joy to the wedding guest who got to continue to celebrate with this couple. The third thing I want you to note about this miracle is that it proved that Jesus is God. Yeah, the great thing about this, and we see Jesus doing all sorts of miracles in different ways, but this is one of those where we don't see a prayer, we don't see anything, it's just he thinks it, and at the moment maybe that the master of the feast is pouring the water, at some point in time, he just, boom, that water is transformed into wine, and only God has the power to do something like that. Alexander McLaren wrote this, is this not the signature of divinity? That without means, the mere forthputting of the will is all that is wanted to mold matter as plastic to his command. I mean, you think about it. I mean, no one could do this. This is not possible for someone other than God. And as I mentioned at the beginning, this is one of the main reasons that John chooses this miracle. Because in John chapter 20, he says, you know, Jesus performed many miracles that are not written in this book. But I've written the ones that I have written so that you may believe that he's God. I've specifically chosen certain signs, certain miracles, because they're the ones that help point to Jesus's divinity. And this is the very first miracle that Jesus did, and it's also the first one that John says, I'm going to add this. I want to share this. Why? Because I want you to see this important truth that Jesus, he's God. Only God can turn water into wine. And after all of these miracles that we're going to see, the seven that John reveals, we're going to see a pattern as well, which is the response that people have. And John's bringing that response to help us see. See, this is the sign that was pointing to Jesus' deity, but notice that people recognized it. And we're going to see the disciples recognize it in verses 11 and 12. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. So John tells us this beginning of signs, speaking of the sign of water being turned into wine, it was done to manifest Jesus's glory. And notice what the ultimate response was. It caused the disciples to believe in him. So the sign manifested the reality of the glory of Jesus, that he truly is God and it brought the disciples to this place of belief. Now, as we looked at already, this isn't the first time they believed. So it's not like, oh, we finally believe. You know, we already saw Nathaniel. We already saw Philip. We already saw John the Baptist. We've seen others who have testified to who he is prior to this. So, so there are those who, who recognize who he was, but this is more of a, a deeper belief. 
And I think this is true for us as well. When Jesus does something miraculous in your life, you know, you've already come to faith in him. You already believe in who he is. You've already trusted, you know, that he died on the cross for you. And that's a wonderful miracle of what he's done to, to make you a new creation. But all of a sudden you're in this horrible situation. You got this problem and Jesus does something miraculous for you. But there's just a depth of belief that comes now of like, wow, I believe you even more. I believe in who you are even more. Why? Because I have experienced it personally. And there's something about that personal experience that brings a greater depth of belief in who Jesus is. And this is something that we see with the disciples over and over again through the Gospels. There's a greater depth of belief in who Jesus is because of the things that they see that he does. So in these verses, with this first sign, which ultimately is the purpose of bringing, you know, uh, evidence and proof to Jesus's deity, there's a lot more to this than just that. First, we learned it's really wise to invite Jesus into every relationship that you have, to everything that you're doing. Why? Because Jesus brings joy, he brings blessing to us. Second, we should follow the wonderful examples of Mary. When you have a problem... Bring it to Jesus. What should be our motto? What Jesus says to you, do it. Third, we should follow the three wonderful examples of the servants. Obey Jesus immediately. Obey him completely. Obey him in faith. And fourth, we learn these three things from the miracle. Jesus wants to involve you in his miracles. His miracles are good for us. And his miracles ultimately display the proof that he is God.